0: And now, coming to you live from the grocery room, high above the Crude Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stratton and Gary K.
1: Wolf on the Crude Street Podcast! And welcome back, lovey. It's great to have you with us again. Um, and and congratulations on the anthology, The The Best of World SF, which I guess is just out this month. Am I right?
2: Um, yeah, firstly, thanks for having me back on the show. It feels like, you know, like a Friday dinner with your, with your relatives at <laughs> this point only nicer um yeah i think it's out um, it came out the first of june in the u.s and it's been out in the uk since april so okay so it's like it never stops hopefully we can just keep publishing it every every other month in, in different <laughs> well,
1: is um, it going to be an annual
2: um i'm not sure it's going to be an annual you know it might be biannual um well, I mean, that's the hope. Anyway, what happened was they put a volume one on the cover. So you assume there has to be a volume two. <laughs> that's, you know, that's kind that of implicit the there. Um, Yeah, it should be a, a second volume should be very exciting. I can't really, I, I'm not going to say anything about it.
0: <laughs> well, I guess we, well, one thing I, I'd like to start with, because there's so many, so many things to talk about around this subject of world science fiction. And, I mean, you've been actively involved in trying to bring n- uh, both non-Anglophone and certainly non-UK-centric, non-US-centric science fiction to the attention of UK and US readers for so long. What was it that started you down this path? Because this is the, whilst it's the first, this big, be- best of is the first for Head of Zeus, it's certainly the fifth, I think, anthology of this type in a way that you've been involved in in editing.
2: Uh, The six, I think, yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, you know, there's nothing, as I like to say, there's nothing altruistic about it. It's self-preservation. It's because I'm a kid from a kibbutz in Israel, essentially, writing in English as a second language, just out of sheer bloody-mindedness of saying (laughs) I'm going to take on, I'm just some kid who, you know, I'm going to take on this field. (laughs) And, you know, it's ridiculous when you start out and you say, I'm going to do that, I'm going to take on this field and I'm going to, be as good as you know the uh, the, the people at the top um so it's it's completely it's a complete act of hubris to start at, especially when i was starting out, you know around the time and de Bodard was starting out and you know we ran into a lot of the same sort of difficulty um especially when you're not trying to write american science fiction mm-hmm. or whatever you're trying to write from your own background um so that that was really the motivation because i i travel a lot as you know and wherever i travel i'd always pick up local locally published books i'd see what what was there and um, one of the big prompts for that was when i went to china 20 years ago you know and, and i was welcomed there was no internet there was no phone smartphones there was none of that and i got in touch with this guy in china professor wuyan and um, through the one email address that you could find on the entire internet bag. and they welcomed me really really well you know and I got to hang out in in Beijing with with all the science fiction writers and publishers in China and then I went to Qingdu to science fiction world and you know as I like to tell the story there was also this young guy called Lu Xin who they gave him an award for a short story he wrote so that's yeah. You know, I I don't think anyone there. And, and it was so different. The Chinese science fiction scene was basically a bunch of us in a room drinking tea, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I went back, last, was it last year? I got invited last year and I haven't seen anyone for 20 years. And and everything was so much bigger and fancier and, um, you know, the events are glitzy in Starfield. But at core, you know, when I'd met the old writers from 20 years ago, at core, they're still science fiction writers. They just want to go and hang out in a dusty room and drink tea. <laughs> okay. um, but there's just a lot more money and a lot more prestige um, over there now. But what happened was basically I came, I, you know, I came away and I thought I was so overwhelmed by how I was welcomed. And I was, I was just a guy, you know, I had long mm. hair and, uh, you mm-hmm. know, I was a backpacker. And um, and I thought, you know, I'd really like to to give something back. I'd like to do something for other people. And it was only years later, I think, I was living in Laos, which actually, you know, bordering China, but I never never went over the border. Um, I started putting together this idea, and in fact, I came across the original document I had, and it was called "The Best of World Reserve," <laughs> uh, which I didn't even realize. Um, so I kind of, you know, I knew no one was going to do it, but I pitched it to Jason Sizemore from Apex, who um, was just a very stubborn guy, you know, he's he's based in Kentucky, of all places. And um, and I said, look, you're not going to make any money doing this book. <laughs> that was my pitch. You're not going to make <laughs> any money. Um, and you're going to sell maybe 200 copies, but it's worth doing. And, and being, you know, stubborn, he just said, yeah, okay, let's do it. So... Um, so we started doing this Apex Book of World SF on no budget. We didn't have money to pay for anyone. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I had to hunt for stories because there was no international writers being published in the magazines. Back. And I had to hunt for stuff. I got two Chinese stories that the authors translated. And I kind of did the translation editing, almost rewriting the voice. Um, so publishing the first story by Han Song in English or by Yang Ping mm-hmm. as well. Um, and that was before Ken Liu started doing, you know, the amazing stuff that he's doing now. Um, I, you know, I hunted Malaysian horror fiction in Malaysia. I got, I translated one story from Hebrew myself just so I would have an extra story. Um, I had to do all that. And by this point, of course, it's completely different because the whole field has changed in terms of short fiction. All the writers, we have so many international writers who are getting published. Um, and of course, that doesn't really extend to novels in any way, you know.
1: It's one of the things that uh, I was noticing. I, I dug out my old copy of uh, of an anthology that I think um, Brian Aldiss and Sam Lindvall did on World SF back in the 80s. And it's interesting to me that when you look at the earlier stuff, I mean, stuff that came out even before your Apex book, uh, Damon Knight was translating a lot of French science fiction. There was an occasional German science fiction novel that wasn't a Perry Rodin novel, but, Asia and Africa were just invisible uh, when people talked about a world SF in the 70s and 80s. They were mostly talking about European uh, SF and uh, maybe a little bit of Latin American magic realism. But it seems to me, looking at, uh, at your book, that, uh, that, that whole continents that were invisible to science fiction readers 40 years ago are now prominent, may- maybe in many, many ways more prominent than Europe. Well there's the classic um, god the does anthology from the 80s
2: the the yeah. future africa anthology that didn't have right. any african writers and i don't think it even had any black writers in it it was it was a purely american <laughs> yeah. white american african anthology it was it was you know as much as i love him that was maybe an unfortunate um but it was of the time this was how they people thought at the time in in the field yeah. you know um and you know, partly I'm a very angry guy, so this book is in a way a very angry book. If you read the introduction, um, I, you know, the whole, the whole reason I'm using that term "World SF" is because I'm co-opting it from, as you said, from those guys back in the in the 70s and 80s who started this World SF thing purely as an excuse to hang out with Soviet yeah. writers. And they would meet up and have these drinking parties in Switzerland or in Sweden, you know. And it sounded like great fun. It really did. But it didn't do anything for me. You know, when I came yeah. into the field, yeah. no one was really interested. No one was helping um, other writers, um, you know, from, from international writers. No one was re- No one really cared. And you get so tired of submitting stories and having them rejected because the editors don't really understand where you're coming from, yeah. you know. Um, not to mention all the barriers you used to have like those international reply coupons and printing manuscripts and you'd post them to America and, and get a rejection slip, you know, and I you know, you used to get those um I, until recently you used to get those analog rejection slips that had the tick box on why it didn't <laughs> work and he <it> said <laughs> yeah. And he said analog readers are problem solvers, you know, and um <laughs> and you And it was just, you know, and you realize at some point that you're just not going to make any headway um, in that direction. And that's when I stopped submitting uh, by post. And I basically targeted the online magazines that no one was reading and had no prestige at the time. But they were willing to publish you. They were willing to be a bit more experimental, a bit more interesting
0: um you've you've touched on a lot of the things that have changed materially since you've entered the field for a writer who's coming from outside of north america or the uk um one thing that that crosses my mind because you you mentioned in the introduction to the anthology I mean, things have changed but have they changed as much as science fiction wants to pat itself on the back for we talk a lot about inclusion being open to work from other places but are we actually that inclusive or are we still looking through blinkers at large parts of the world
2: i think in short fiction it's changed i think partly there's been the drives from you know the money that's been put into chinese science fiction um there's the korean project um as well so funding for korean fiction um and there's a lot more writers who are doing this or using the internet and either we get people like me writing english as a second language or we get more amateur translators. You know, we've got Alex Schwartzman doing great work translating Russian science fiction. We've got Ken Liu translating Chinese science fiction. It very much depends on someone just kind of putting that effort in. In books, I don't think we're really noticing any major difference. I don't, I don't see the major imprints making any conscious effort to address the fact that they're not publishing translations or they're not publishing international rights. I think the conversation is still very centered on America and what America wants, what America does. And that's fair enough. It's American publishers. They have every right to talk about it. I saw an Israeli agent recently talk about it, saying it's impossible to sell Israeli fiction to America because they're just not, it's not part of their conversation right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, and, you know, you can't blame them for being, you know, they've had, they've just had four years that put America first. You know, we can't, <laughs> we
0: can't so, really. So, some years ago at a work on in Britain, I was talking to a French publisher who had acquired the rights to a Neil Stephenson novel, and they were struggling to translate it because it was going to cost them more than it cost them to acquire the book, to translate it into French. In fact, they couldn't find anybody willing to uh, for even that kind of money because of the sheer scale of the job is the reason that we're not seeing novels getting into the market as much yet because we're at an early stage of development in that way passing on from short fiction because the co- it's the cost of translation or it's because of either lack of awareness or lack of confidence from publishers do you think
2: look every other country in the world has an infrastructure of translation and it's a part of your cultural life mm-hmm. your, your your book life right so every country In You know, definitely when I was growing up, everything is translated. You know, you have a lot of original Hebrew fiction, but translation is a huge part of it, and it's all part of the the ecosystem. That doesn't really exist for English. They don't have any sort of, they don't really have the interest. You know, they're kind of saying, we've got enough writers, we don't need to bring this stuff on. And if you do bring it on, it's funded by institutions in the country of origin. You know, so the only reason we got the Witcher books, for example, is because the Polish Institute tra- um, paid for the translation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's the only reason we got. It. And to this day, you know, I'm because I'm also doing this book column for the Washington Post, and we're desperate to try and find these these international books, these translated books. And you know, it's kind of like you, you find one here, one here. You really have to kind of struggle for, and ultimately, you. You know, I'm not doing this because I think it's it's some sort of ideological thing. I think the field would be better the more voices it has in it, because people need to read new original texts, new ideas, new voices, different ways of doing. We're just getting this one channel of American voices shouting into, you know, every market around the world and that's the stuff i grew up on. i grew up on american translated american science fiction
1: one of the things i thought was fascinating about the selection of stories is that they they seem to fall into two groups there are groups that are decidedly um not paying attention to the american tradition they're decidedly uh, 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 icelandic story is very icelandic some of the african stories are very african then there's another group of stories where well, it's clear that the authors grew up on American science fiction, and they're in dialogue with it, and they're uh, making they're, they're, they're seeding their stories with little Easter eggs for people who recognize uh, writers. I mean, there's uh, I forget whose story it is that talks about the simac Robot Museum. Uh, so on, on, on the one hand, and I, I had this one one conversation I had with Cixin uh, Liu about uh, his reading. Anyway, he he loved Asimov and Heinlein. I mean, he wanted to be a 1940s American science fiction writer um, when he was starting out. Uh, So, And and, and there's a nice balance in the collection, I think, between those authors who uh, are are in dialogue with the Anglo-American tradition and those that are wanting to show us there's another way of imagining science fiction entirely.
2: Well, I mean, it's actually, it's a point Silvia Moreno-Garcia
1: made to me recently when uh, we did one of the events
2: for, for the launch. And um, that, um, you know, when you think of science fiction, core science fiction, right, which is kind of what we focused when you go to other countries, that's exactly what people grew up on and what they yeah. kind of conceive of as science fiction. They still think of Asimov Clark and, uh, you know, Heinlein. Um, And and, and people write they actually do write that very sort of almost old fashioned science fiction. And in fact, one of the big problems that I've always noticed, um, when you know, people won't accept science fiction from someone who's not American. So if you're an Israeli writer trying to write a science fiction story, It probably won't get published, or wouldn't have gotten published, because they were like, "Well, what do we need you for? We've got Asimov, Clark, and Heinlein. You know, we've got the the real guys doing it. Why why, why do you think you should do it?" Um, My problem as an editor was, you know, when I sat down when I started doing this, I just took all the stories that I really like. And, looked, and then I looked at the spreadsheet, and I thought, well, this is an anthology that one person was going to buy. That person would be me. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I need to actually, you know, take into account that this is a science fiction anthology. So I wanted to focus on science fiction and not do as many of the weird stories that I like, even though I snuck them. I snuck some of them in. Um and I wanted something that had, you know, that would have robots and spaceships on the cover. Um, you know, we managed to get that little spaceship and rocket ship into the cover. And I really wanted a little robot standing on the W as well. <laughs> we just, uh, so so you're trying to put together something that is recognisable, but different. I don't know. I don't think anyone is representing anything. I think they're just, I was trying to find the best stories that I could find. Do,
0: do you think that sort of in 2021, and based on your reading over the last 20 or 30 years, that there is culturally across the world a common or a shared idea of what science fiction is? Or is it something that when the, the, the idea either evolves or impacts a culture, it becomes its own thing in that place?
2: I don't know. I mean... I honestly don't. Um, also because I'm a reluctant science fiction writer. You know, um, if you think about it, I've only written really written Central Station as a science fiction book, and obviously I write science fiction in short stories, but mm-hmm. most of my books don't really fit into genre very much. So when mm-hmm. my books come out in translation, sometimes they come out from a genre imprint, sometimes they come out from a more literary or experimental imprint. And what I found with Central Station, which was my one spaceships on the cover book, is that I discovered that every country does have that core group of people that might not be a very large group of people, but it's got this—it's mm-hmm. dedicated group of people who like spaceships on the cover book. Mm-hmm. That's, that's as I call it. And you know, and what I found with Central Station is that suddenly someone in Bulgaria got in touch and they want to publish it in Bulgaria. And then they wanted to publish it in Romania. And then, so you get all those ex Soviet countries have still have like a dedicated publisher. That might be a guy in his, a single guy in his garage, but he does Mm -hmm. spaceships on the cover books, you know, and there's people to buy them in Israel. There's, you know, the one guy who does spaceships on the cover book. And, um, and there's not much money in it on a, on a, on a country-by-country basis, you know, but if you start adding them up, (laughs) if you can get all those people who like those spaceships on the cover. But, you know, I I think it's still niche. I mean, I did an event for um, Israeli libraries recently, you know, with the science fiction story. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure what they made of it exactly. It still seems very exotic and uh, a bit strange that anyone would do that
0: why why do you think it is that short fiction seems to be the place where, people, where there actually is some progress in in making uh the field more accessible and making and connecting readers to uh to to diverse work from around the world is it simply that because of length the cost is lower or is it that the readers there or the field there or the editors there are more engaged
2: i think it's easier I think, obviously, the one thing that changed everything was the internet. You know, the fact that it enabled the communication. It enabled us to send manuscripts without having to go through the difficulties that were there before. The fact that the online magazine stuff, you know, that made it accessible. And eventually, there's a lot of writers writing in English as a second language. Don't forget, which my friend Francesco, you know, is very much against. He's like, why should I write in English? I'm Italian. I should write in Italian. And it should still be published. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm not fighting. I'm not looking at the world as I want it to be. I'm looking at the world as it is. <laughs> um, um, but it's, you know, it's easier ultimately for them to do it. But we still had to wait for a lot of editors to to, to change. You know, I, I tell that joke. I mean, it's sort of a joke. But I said, it only took me 35 years to sell to Analog. You know, <laughs> and I, haven't, I haven't been submitting for 35 years. I'm not that old. But I had to wait for Stanley Schmidt to leave. And as soon as he left and a new editor came in, I sold to Analog. Yeah. You know, I think it was the same with, um, with fantasy and science fiction. I mean, when Gordon Van Gelder was editing it, bless him. I mean, I think Gordon himself said he'd only published like five authors. You know, he had the five writers he liked and he published them. As soon as he passed on the reins to someone else... Um the magazine changed the nature of the magazine, but it was a long wait. I think I think fantasy and science fiction was the last magazine to to move over to electronic submission. Yeah. So that yeah, was a were. huge a huge battle, you know, to to just try and that, that huge barrier of the postal system um that we finally Finally, gone out. So. Um, but you know, we're not seeing this in books. We're not books are corporate entities and they have zero interest in any of that stuff. They'll take something occasionally. Um, well, well, but I, there's well, definitely-
1: I, I, I got myself involved this year, and we're supposed to be deciding now on another attempt at, at produ- producing a, an award for translated science fiction. Cheryl Morgan oh. got me involved in it, but it began in China. And and there's there's a, a good selection of books, but a lot of them in, in English translation aren't presented as science fiction. I mean, we've got we've got Russian books and a Cuban novel, and uh, but uh, I think part of the issue is the translated fiction in the states is considered weirdly elite in some way. Um, uh, that the, the books that get published here are the ones that can be marketed beyond genre with very few exceptions i mean uh, a handful of chinese writers you mentioned uh, shen shofan or have recognizable names uh, but apart from that the books that i'm getting to review uh, getting to look for this award um uh, are pretty much presented as mainstream uh, or magic realism which is kind of a catch all american term for anything that uh, well uh, anything that doesn't look like realism, I guess. So I wonder if part of the problem is that the genre market itself may be narrower than, uh, than the mainstream market, or possibly the reverse. Maybe it's easier for a genre book to get translated because there is a market here, whereas in the mainstream, there may not be. Um,
2: yeah, I don't know. I don't see anyone really focusing on international science fiction. So I think it probably does make sense to, to open up that appeal as much as possible. But, you know, even if you're looking at books, like I'm reading the new Kazuri Ishiguro at the moment, you know, uh-huh. and the guy won a Nobel Prize, for, you know, he yeah. won a Nobel Prize. Clara and the Sun is clearly, and he's our a translated author, you know I'm saying, he's a major important author. Um, Clara and the Sun, I think, is remarkable science fiction. Mm-hmm. but it's not science fiction that anyone in science fiction is going to be particularly interested. So, yes, I think it is kind of narrow. You know, I, th- I think we're very lucky that someone like Ishiguro chooses to write genre fiction. I mean, the last uh, his last book was The Buried Giant, which was an incredible Arthurian fantasy right. of all things, mm-hmm. you know. And, and he never sees... You know, whenever I mention his name to someone who likes science fiction, they're like, who? <laughs> you know, I mean... The guy's a household name, but unless you're
1: a science fiction. no That's what I mean. Amer- Americans will recognize him probably from, I don't know, from the movie of The Remains of the Day rather than from having read anything. Uh, so, so, so there is that kind of narrowness. I was trying to think back that as far as I can remember, one novel, one translated novel has ever won a World Fantasy Award, and I think that was Perfume. Uh, if right. I'm not sure. And that's 30 years ago or something.
2: Yeah, I mean, the World Fantasy Award is a good example of Americans just putting world in front of something, you know. And and it's not the award's fault, in a way. It's just like Worldcon. They slapped world in front of it because of the World Fair that was going on in 1939 Mm. in New York. And the same with "world" SF, You know, they didn't really intend to do very much, but it sounded good on... Like, literally, it was supposed to sound good on paper because they needed a letter-headed paper to send invites to Soviet writers. So it had to look official. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, my my whole use of World SF is very tongue in cheek in that sense. I'm not taking it very seriously. Just a, a parody of that American tendency to put world in front of everything. Um
0: but on, on, on you know sort of in that, that that sort of spirit though, I mean if tongue in cheek or not, tongue in cheek or not, the advantage of having non U.S., U.K. science fiction published in the U.S. UK, US and U.K. or in that, those English markets is that it enriches what we experience. I mean, surely the greatest misunderstanding that I encounter about it, and I assume I wonder if you do as well, is that it's an act of benevolence to include this work rather than something where we as readers end up gaining immeasurably by having it as, as part of the field.
2: Exactly, that's what it is. I I am bored of American science fiction. I find I find it very very boring to read. And I'm believing now. I'm receiving books, you know, as a, as a as a columnist. I'm receiving book after book after book. Um, that end up going to the charity shop because I don't. I have no more interest in this. I've no more. You know, as soon as a character is named, I don't know some sort of American, you know. Name, I, I just don't have the interest. There's nothing new, and science fiction is yeah. all about the new. It's all about doing something original, something we haven't seen before, or having a fresh angle on something, you know. And I'm not finding that so much, um, you know. There's other aspects. It's not to say that international writing is amazing in its own, you know. It, writers are not part of some great big family outside of America. It's just individual people writing individual stuff. Some of it is great, some of it is bad. Yeah, um, But as someone, you know, someone told me once from uh, Southeast Asia, you know, if you're a mediocre American writer, you can have a perfectly decent career. But if you're a Southeast Asian writer, you have to be the best Southeast Asian writer to even get your foot through the door. And I think that's kind of the problem. I think we need to see. Yeah, let's publish some mediocre
1: Eastern European <laughs> fiction. Let's publish some mediocre African fiction. Um like I say, we did have 20 years of Perry Rodin novels being translated, so we had some sense of what, I guess, German mid level pulp was in the 70s.
2: Yeah, those are fun. I've always wanted to uh, to, to, to do one. Um, <laughs> I I got to be in a Perry Rodin magazine just with an interview because I was such an enthusiastic. Um, <laughs> yeah, we had, you know, I read them back in the 80s. Uh, but again, they you know, they're virtually. Unknown oh, outside like Germany, I imagine. I guess that's true.
0: Do you think there are different barriers to writers coming from different parts of the world? I mean, my own exp- feeling in the last five years is that writers in South Asia are being uh, discovered, integrated, you know, connected to the field more readily, maybe than from say the the continent of Africa and the, the many countries there and, what, and whatever else. It seems to me like that the level of interest is different and the barriers are different when it comes to actually getting into the markets we're talking about.
2: Well, I mean, you know, you're not going to find the same level of engagement with science fiction everywhere around the world. Um, Latin America is difficult for some reason. Um, Either, you know, the translations, there's no one really translating from Spanish consistently in the same way that we have translations from other countries. Most people who are writing in Southeast Asia are writing in English, Well, writing science fiction or writing in English, or at least that's the stuff we're seeing. Um, so again, whether that's a first language or a second or third language. But I mean, even if you look at somewhere like India, that has uh, a huge population, but a very, very small number of science fiction and fantasy writers. And I like to, you know, it's a, it's a joke, but I like to tell the joke that I know all five Indian science fiction writers and they all hate each other. Um which is not, do you think that's really true or do you think not that entirely it's true but um but you know that that's kind of how things are i've had um I've had someone contact me recently, and I think he was Peruvian and he's working on on andean futurism, and I said, why don't you talk to why don't you talk to Francesco Francesco does this he said no, the other guy's talking to him, and we don't we don't get up. You know, so, <laughs> So there's two guys doing, you know, Indian Indian futurism and, of course, they're they're, they're fighting each other. And and that's that's science fiction in a nutshell, isn't it? It's um, if you put two people in a convention, they're going to split into two separate conventions.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that is science fiction in a nutshell. I mean... I mean, you talk about how back in the 70s, the world SF crew would travel the world and have a drink. And we're, we're almost using it as an excuse for travel, I guess. Um, but is one of the things that also lacking in getting the writers from, from around the world into the English market is one of the, uh, one of the barriers that, that it's very difficult to get these people together because there's so many benefits that come to writers from being able to interact directly with one another.
2: Do you think so? I mean, I'm not sure I like writers or not much, um, <laughs> but I want to hang out with them on a regular basis. Um, once, once in a blue moon is nice. I mean, look, to go back to something you said earlier, about the reason to publish this stuff is yeah. because a lot of the time, again, nothing's going to happen with it, any more than with your native material. But sometimes if you publish, say, The Witcher, you end up with a hugely successful best-selling series that has a spin-off TV show and incredibly successful game. Sometimes you take a weird Chinese book by a guy called Lu Shin, That, by the way, which is another thing that I mentioned quite a lot, is the person who blurb that book originally. One of the people who blurb that book was me, and the only reason I, they must have asked me to blurb that book is because they thought no one was going to buy it. Because yeah. <laughs> why would I why would my name my name isn't gonna help sell anything? So if you find a first edition of the three body problem, my name is somewhere on there. Um mm. of course what happened with that book that I never thought would sell anything, um, it saw something like three million copies, it had Barack Obama endorsed, it and suddenly they replaced my name with, you know, Barack Obama, which <laughs> you know, I'm sure I'm sure he feels bad for it. <laughs> <laughs> um but you know, no one expected it. So you need no one knows anything in publishing, and if you don't know anything, why don't you just try and publish something good in the hope that it takes off? You know, um, there, so there's it, a lot can, of fear in it. You can certainly point to some examples of here are books that no one really expected anything out of: The Witcher, Three Body Problem, and they're two of the biggest titles um, of the 21st century. So I think I think publishers, for for pure commercial reasons, should really. Get their act together on that because they're missing out.
0: Having spent so long reading, following uh, international science fiction around the way you have, how has it impacted your own work?
2: um I can, can, you, can,
0: can you even say? Is it is it too, too embedded in, in into your experience that you, that you can't even separate it out?
2: Not really, I don't think. I mean, occasionally I'd find a writer that inspires me or teaches me a new trick, you know. Um, in fact, one of them would be my friend Shimon Adaf, who I mentioned quite a lot, who's, you know, well known in Israel as a, an important literary writer and poet. He won every, every major award in Israel. And in fact, his books are coming into English now. I think FSG are going to be publishing his trilogy or sort of meta detective novel kind of started classical detective fiction and then starts deconstructing the detective genre. And, um, and we're not, we're not really going to see his major, but I think his major work is a book called, uh, four, which is a proper science fiction novel, but a very literary science fiction novel. And it's kind of set in, a in a Jewish enclave in you know, a post-human future. And it's uh, very Samuel Delaney. You, you know, he's a big science fiction fan, and you can see the influence of Samuel Delaney on this. You can see the influence of a whole bunch of different things. And, and when I read that book, I just thought, wow, I thought oh, this is teaching me something new about the things I can do. And when I went to write a book like The Violent Century, that was very much influenced by what hmm. he was doing in K4, for example. Um, so, you know, I try and learn from everything I read, but I'm also trying to do my own weird thing that, you know, people, no one gets, no one still gets. <laughs> so you've,
0: you've done half a dozen anthologies and I've got my own thoughts on this, but I'm curious in attempting to get people to pay attention to something like world SF, what is the value of anthology?
2: Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, well, Jonathan, I mean, the anthologies have no value. I'm sorry to ruin your life's work. but They have no value. Um, no, I think... I mean, the difference is what I wanted to do, this is why this book is almost... It's my first real anthology, if you will, because it's the first anthology that I got paid and I was able, able to pay writers, you know, and it was put yeah. out in hardback and that was really important to me. So it's a big hardcover book you know it's a book to sit on the shelf for years to come it's not you know before that we were doing these paperbacks print on demand mostly selling an ebook. um we were trying to get the word out but this is kind of like a book to be a statement it's a book to sit there it's a book that you can come back to ideally Um, that you can use in teaching courses that you can use at university but i mean the 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 real answer is i just like short fiction i just i think most novels are just really bloated short fiction um short stories these days you know and i think a lot of the books we see that are five six seven hundred pages could have been a decent short story or a novella or something (laughs) well i think that's Um, true So I much prefer. I think I think short stories are much more elegant. I think they're much more concise, and I think they're really the cutting edge of science fiction.
1: That's there where you want to look to see what books will be doing ten years from. I think one of the things I always get from anthologies, or when I when I started reading science fiction, I was a kid. What an anthology would do would be to give me names uh, of people, and I'd go out and find a novel. And one of the frustrations in older, uh, anthologies, I go back to the Aldous and Harry Harrison anthologies, uh, is I, I'd, I'd, I'd find a story I liked and I do not know, there was a, there was a famous Damon Knight anthology called 13 Great French Stories of Science Fiction. And if I liked one of the authors, that's it. I could find nothing else at all. And I think that's changed between then and, and your anthology because uh, you can go through, uh, your best of world SF and you find, uh, names that are, Really, kind of important names. If you, if you, if you, if you Tide Thompson is in it, Vandana Singh. You mentioned Shem Shofan, Hanu Yemi. In other words, somebody reading that anthology now can actually go out and find novels by a lot of the people that are in the anthology. It's not as though it's a an anonymous name that will never be heard from again. And I but think if that's. That's a plus for anthologies, I think. It's a way of finding new writers. if you look at the anthology, a lot of the people that are in the best
2: of world SF are people who were in the apex book of World SF or in Volume Two or in Volume Three before anyone published their books, you know. And I and I think that's interesting in itself that, that I was able to look at that field and recognize the the, the quality of this stuff when book publishers weren't and book publishers were actively in some cases turning down books because I had a guy say to me, I tried to pitch him Tadde Tade Thompson's book at mm-hmm. some point. And he just said to me, um, he said, we don't publish books set in Nigeria. That was the end of the discussion. He said, it sounds great, but we don't, we don't publish books set in Nigeria. So that was one of the big five imprints. Um, yeah, when was time. that? Um, this was a few years ago. Do so. you think that's say it that now? I, I, you know, I mean, I've heard that from Sylvia Morona Garcia. She was trying to shop uh, uh, you know, again, she became huge recently, as you are as probably aware, but she was trying to shop her book around and people were saying, we don't publish books set in Mexico. Right. Yeah. You know, or, or you know, sometimes they wouldn't be as blunt. Sometimes they would just say, didn't capture our interest but you know that that but that is what it comes down to um it's shocking to me because i don't want to read books set in new york i if i never read another book set in new york ever (laughs) again i would be happy i have no more interest it's not in new york you know i might make an exception for los angeles noir because i like i just like noir but honestly i don't want to read any more new york books I have no real interest in New York. I don't understand New York writers' um, <laughs> dominance in the American landscape. Um, it's it's just not that interesting, you know. I'd much rather read something I haven't read before. I, I've and got I think to say, one I of the of... tragedies, just so yeah, okay. just to go back to some of the writers I published early on, I think one of the tragedies is, for example, writers like Ekaterina Sedia, who has published very good books. Um, and and just got so sick of having to deal with with genre, with the field, with the attitude to her that she she quit writing, and I think that's a that's a tragedy. We lost someone who was a really, you know, I love her fiction. I love her short fiction. Um, and the story that I published in the anthology, The Bank of Burkina Faso, um, I asked her for a story years ago uh, when I was thinking of doing something, and she showed me this story. And she said, no one in science fiction will publish it. She tried all the magazines and all the editors turned it down. They didn't know what to do with it. And I think she ended up publishing it in a, in her last collection, basically. And I swore that one day I would publish that story because it was a great story. I couldn't understand why anyone would reject that story. And so I published it in, in the best of all the stuff. And now it's just been, um, it's just been featured on, uh, on this very big podcast as well, because we, we kind of shoved the book around to, uh, to show it. Uh, and, you know, I think that's just tragic, though, that people felt so put out by the field that they just left, that it stopped.
1: Do you think that's more of an issue in the science fiction field than in fantasy? Because fantasy does have that amorphous kind of uh, uh, bleeding into magic realism and that sort of thing. I mean, uh, I was thinking, for example, that... Uh, one of the one of the writers in, in, in your books and show is very successful, but she's very successful as a fantasy writer. Uh, and for that matter, as a fantasy writer, setting her first two novels in Regency, England. I, I want, I'm just wondering to what extent this problem is more severe in science fiction than it is in the broader area of fantastic literature or the even broader area of just translated literature in general.
2: Oh, it's not. I mean, you'll have to excuse me. I know it annoys purists, but when I say science fiction, I tend to basically refer to science fiction fantasy, the the entire field. Um, I don't really distinguish between them. I did have to focus this book to be more core science fiction, but I would have been happily... And as you can see, there are some weird selections, and some more fantastical selections in this yeah. book. But what I've noticed as a as a columnist recently, which I've never really realised before, is just how small core science fiction actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, the field is basically something like 95%. And occasionally, occasionally someone will send me a science fiction book, maybe. Um, there might be a few kind of old school science fiction writers who are just doing a series and once a year they'll have a little book come out. But I'm seeing, other than a few space operas, i see Jonathan making faces, but well, because uh, big... well, I look, I see about, I would say about 70-30, I would have said. Right, okay, that might be that might be a fairer assessment, you know, but I'm and... honestly not seeing, um, you know, I get excited when someone actually sends me a book with a spaceship on it, because <laughs> all I'm getting is fantasy, 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 and a lot of it is YA fantasy, mm. or, you know, it's book two well, in the YA fantasy that, that started coming out.
0: Certainly what's interesting in that space, and where you're right, is that, there's a very, very, very small body of work that it is actually, if you like, to, to not be too kind of whatever about it, smart, engaged science fiction as opposed to science fiction that is still enjoying all of the same effects that were popular in the 40s and 50s. You know, it's like if you're looking for really smart, challenging science fiction, it is a very small part of what's published right now.
2: Very, very small. Um, and, you know, I, the nice thing about science fiction, as I said, is it has its core audience everywhere in the world. So you, you'll have the same thousand people in every country who like that. Sort of. um, but, you know, again, the, the books I'm reading, I don't want to give away my, uh, you know, picks for the year. But um, from the books I've read this year, I think the Kazuri Shiguru, um, you know, is it actually works as science fiction, which... I didn't think, I didn't like his last science fiction book. You know, the Never Let Me Go, I thought, didn't Mm -hmm. work. Because of that class thing that he does, it didn't really work in that context. But this one works incredibly well. I mean, that's a very literary novel. That's a very literary science fiction. And the other one I really loved is The Memory Theatre by... um, Karen Tidbeck. By by Karen Tidbeck, which is a fantasy novel um, by a Swedish author. Who is in the best of all the stuff, as it happens? Because I'm a, I'm a big fan of a short fiction writer. But I thought the Memory Theater is it, remarkable because it does something new. It does, you know, it's a fantasy novel. It's not a science fiction novel, but it does something new. It does something interesting. I don't know where it's going, and this is what I'm really looking for. If I don't know where something is going, mm-hmm. I'm still, I'm still finishing the Shiguru, and I have no idea where it's going. I have no idea what he's doing. Um, and that's exciting. Because every other book I get, I know every beat. Don't forget, I write this stuff. I know every beat that's going yeah. to come. I can, every twist and every, you know. And I just I just long for someone to do something fresh and original and exciting. And that always gets me.
1: I think it does happen. I suspect if you get the same things that I, in the mail that I get, uh, you're, you're getting uh, books chosen by a publisher or by a publicist or by somebody in the mailroom. Uh, and I, I find myself getting a lot of books that are technically science fiction or what they used to call techno thrillers. And they're, by, they're all listed as New York Times bestsellers and they're all by people I've never heard of. And people who are on, there's a shadow world of science fiction and fantasy that doesn't get discussed in the Hugo Awards, doesn't get reviewed much, but they, they make a lot of money. I mean, one example uh, is, is, is the whole uh, alternate history subgenre, the Harry Turtle dove subgenre. There are probably four or five writers working in that who are very, very successful but are almost invisible to the general old fashioned science fiction audience.
2: I mean the question is how much of an audience you know, there's no core audience anymore in a way. There's so many it's much more separated, it's much more fragmented, I think, the market. So yeah, you can have I know what you mean about the techno thrillers. I mean I do get quite a few of those near future dystopian yeah. things end of the world thing. I can't read dystopias, especially American dystopias. Like, America is a dystopia. I don't need to read, you know, survivalist, you know, how people survive. I don't really want people to survive. I mean, I've been working on this series of stories called The Land, essentially. I mean, I I had a novella called New Atlantis that came out. And my whole argument is, I don't really want people to survive in, in particular. I'd much rather <laughs> ants survived, you know. Which again harks back to very old science fiction, like Clifford Simak, who kind of said that that yeah. the dogs and the ants are going to take over. And you know, you kind of end up with a moral argument about what what makes humans worth saving in particular, because we're we're so smart and we can write books. Um, So I'm just tired of, of you know, the human race survives the apocalypse. It's like, great, good for you. (laughs) Go human race, you know. Um, But then I ended up, you know, with Central Station. What happened was I didn't realize that it's it's considered an optimistic science fiction book because um, we don't die and we do build all the cool sci-fi gadgets and technologies Mm. and we go to space. And I had loads of people in Silicon Valley really like that book because it was... It fit into that techno-optimistic worldview, and and I was horrified. I just thought, I just thought that wasn't the point. I just wanted to play with the cool golden age <laughs> sci-fi gadget. I didn't want to make an argument about, um, you know, about how it's great that we build rocket ships. <laughs> so, so I thought I'd better go and write about the ants taking over. Um, but
0: t- see, it's funny to me what what struck me with Central Station was it was Tel Aviv, not New York. What? Struck me about. I, I just uh, edited a thing uh, called "Condo Wakes Up" by Saad Hussain, which is set in uh, Dakar. You know, I, I share your hunger for places that aren't the places I've seen. You know, and how the people who live there might see the future or imagine a future, and how that might interact with the futures that I've already experienced. That seems to me what's interesting. Um, and it seems to me what you're talking about to some degree about being interesting to to read and to write as well.
2: Well, you you know, you'd hope so. But again, we, we also have that issue, or I think it was an issue for a long time, of American writers going and writing about other countries, you know, from a very outsider perspective. And I, I, that was actually one of my first realizations that Amer- as a reader. You know, I, I won't mention the name of the book, but it, it was an American science fiction book, um, a, a well-received one, and it had these Chinese and Russian characters alongside the American. And, you know, I've just been through Russia and China and I think I read that. And I thought, these are not, I don't recognize these people. They're, they're sort of Americans, but you know what I mean? It, it didn't work. And I thought that was the first time I really thought, you know, when you have that thing, I, you think I can do better than that, maybe. I can, uh, which is every writer just has that sort of impulse. That I can do it. Um, but that was the realization. So there's been all that issue. like, why do we need Chinese writers when we can have American writers write about Chinese, chinese characters <laughs> you know um i don't know i don't know that anyone really feels very strongly about any of this stuff you know i mean they're, they're definitely i don't think they're buying the book uh, well i don't know about that but i mean i
0: i was gonna say to heart back i mean the value of an anthology like this one to me isn't that necessarily that it's read by a mass audience but that it's read by the people who end up finding books for mass audiences to some degree. And I actually am a little more optimistic than you are. I don't think that we are in some Pollyanna future at all. But, I mean, I remember when I first encountered a special science fiction bookstore in 1984, and there was a small shelf, you know, a, a yard wide at the back of the bookstore that was for Australian science fiction, never mind anything else. And that's not the world we live in anymore. The, you know, those books are now amongst the general bookstore. And I kind of feel like the value of the last 10 years where you're seeing more interested in international science fiction or non-whatever you want to call it science fiction, however you want to describe it, that at short fiction length ultimately leads to a bunch of editors in, in publishing houses, young editors in publishing houses, who are interested in those um, things, the, the, you know, those kind of writers. And the benefit of, a, of a Lucius Sin is that they, he shows that the right work can sell and so you want to keep looking and i kind of feel like we're at this point where whether or not we're seeing enough of it there's some interest and optimism in actually bringing more genuinely internationally diverse voices into the the traditional science fiction market that that, that we're in now
2: i mean it's possible it's possible but don't forget This whole industry is currently built on use once then throw away, you know. And I say that I've been, you know, my novel writing career really started in 2010. So I've been doing this for a decade and I've got books coming out into 2023 now, I think. So I'm not going anywhere. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like it's getting any easier in any way. It feels like I've spent 10 years Fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. You never and and the easiest thing for publishers to do is to publish a first book, and the hardest sure. thing for publishers to do is to publish a fourth book. You know, and all, all I'm saying as a true. reviewer is debut novels, the great debut novel, or maybe the sequel to last year's debut. Novel. What happens to these people after that debut novel doesn't become an overnight New York Times number one bestseller? No. You oh, know, they percent no disappear. Well, there's no no long term investment in authors. You know, it's just it's putting books out there, seeing if any of them stick, then dumping them and moving on to the next one. And you, and 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 if you think it's hard for American writers, it's doubly hard for international writers. So we yeah. have to have double or triple the determination and the grit. And you know, if you look at Sylvia Moreno Garcia again, um, you know, every year me and Sylvia, you know, we talk to each other. Because we, and every year, it mm. feels like it's our last year. It's our last year. That's it. We're, we're not going to get through. And suddenly, Sylvia became huge with Mexican Gothic, which, again, didn't become huge because of the science fiction reader. It became huge because of the general reader, you know, mm. who's been snapping that yeah. But no publisher sat there and said, I'm going to publish Sylvia's first novel, and then I'm going to publish her second and her third and her fourth until because I know she's a good writer, and it's, mm. one of these books is going to be huge, and it would have been worth it. No, they'll publish one and then they'll dump you. And then you spend two years fighting them over the rights to your book that they, you know, forgot all about and have no interest. And I'm not sure how, you know, it's it's a sustainable model for publishing because there's always going to be new writers, but it's not a sustainable model for writers. And, um, and that's why, yeah. And I'm sorry, now I'm just kind of, I'm complaining when I should be, you know, I should be quietly pleased that, But it took me, like I said, I came up with the idea for this anthology in 2008. It's taken me 13 years to get one publisher to put out this book. It shouldn't, it should not have been this difficult to convince a publisher to do a book like this. Publishers should have been saying, yes, this is a great project. We should do it. And so, yeah, maybe. I'm not as optimistic as you, but I'm just grateful to even have a career. You
0: know. But then, see, I'd say, to, to, to sound more optimistic, though, the best of world SS, of SF is coming out in a year with uh, at least one or two other like Chinese anthologies in, in the, in the uh, US market, a South Asian anthology in the US market, in a year where, uh, where in the last three or four, there have been more and more of these kinds of books being published.
1: A couple so of Korean and, anthologies so, as so, well.
0: Exactly. So, so the market is actually softening for these kind of things, and you know the ability to sell the best of world as, as of two or another kind of retrospective kind of book is is more present now. Surely.
2: What what you're forgetting, I think, in this equation, I mean, yes, and it's good, but what you're forgetting that, especially in terms of the translated and film, the money to make them doesn't come from the American publishers. The money comes from the countries of origin. Someone has to put that money in, and it's not the American. So the Chinese, because of the success of Chinese science fiction internationally and because of the film and the gaming industries, there's a lot of money being pushed into the field. Um, When I went over there, my old friend, Wu Yan... Um, he had to give a financial report. He had to go on stage in front of a fan th- and give a financial report on the state of the industry. You know, it went from having a few of us sitting having tea in a in a, in a dusty restaurant to, to reporting on, such. you know, this much money was made from the gaming, science fiction gaming, this much money was made from science fiction films, this much money was made from science fiction books and so on. Um, so the money's there to promote the Chinese SF that's coming out of English, the Korean, again, I believe was funded by uh, a Korean Institute. Yeah. So yes, we're lucky that there's a publisher willing to put these books out, but they're not really risking very much to do that. Um, and again, you know, I think to be honest with head of Zeus, I think the idea was to put this anthology out because, Because it looks good, not necessarily because it's going to make any money because anyone is necessarily going to buy it. I'm not seeing anyone in science fiction talking about this book. Yeah. And that's, that's what happens to 99% of the international books that come out, is that no one pays them any attention. You get the one book that breaks through, the, the three-body problem. But um, other than that, it's, you know, look at the Japanese imprint that uh, Viz had, Heikosori, Right? They published, uh, they published a lot of Japanese science fiction into English. They published novel after novel after novel. And no one in genre paid it the slightest bit of attention. Um, and, you know, it was tragic.
0: Well, the best of World SF is out now in bookstores and people, I think Gary would would join me in recommending the book and suggest that people go seek out a copy and actually read it. It, it, it's, It's much nicer when it's off the bookshelf in your hands and you can read it. But just very quickly, I mean, hopefully we'll get to come back and talk to you again later in the year. But in your capacity as a writer, you have several books coming out later this year, don't you? I
2: have so many books coming out, Jonathan. I've, I've given up, you know, because I don't write for anyone but myself. I don't even care at this point. I just, I just <laughs> do them. They come out. If anyone reads them, great. If they don't, they don't. Um, yeah. Um, especially with, you know, with the pandemic and everything, I think books got pushed and moved around and now I've got way too much stuff. I've got some of my older books um, coming in, you know, coming back in new edition, um, so yeah. a Man Lies Dreaming just came out in the UK in a new edition and um we're actually doing a tenth anniversary edition for Osama. Mm-hmm. Uh which, which was a book that did, you know, did surprisingly uh, well for me yeah. back in the day.
0: And you just did a collection of stories uh to to do with the Man Lies Dreaming as well?
2: Yeah, that's a pure vanity project. I mean I just, you know, after I wrote a man lies dream, I couldn't quite let go of Adolf Hitler, <laughs> as you do. Um, and so, ju- normally around Christmas, which really brings out the worst in me, brings out my inner furor, you know. So, so I would write a, a, a Hitler PI story um, just to just to get through <laughs> the Christmas. Um, and so, I wanted to put them together into a collection. That, you know, it's fun. It's specifically for people who like this sort of thing, you know. <laughs> Um, I did this poker novella. That Gary, Gary, you read the, my poker novella, didn't you? Oh yeah, I did. The Big I love that. I
1: mean, it was, and that 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 should have done very well because it came out in the states about the time that everybody was watching the Queen's Gambit, which was the old Walter Tevis novel about chess. Um,
2: yeah, but that just came out. I mean, PS did like a small limited edition, and well, that's true. out
1: an ebook,
2: an ebook edition, just so it's out So, you know, these are books that I just, at this point, I don't care. I just wanted to write a novella about a nun who plays poker, so I wrote
1: a (laughs) book about a nun who
2: plays poker. Um, And I've got, as you said, I've got a book called The Hood coming out in the UK, and I've got a book called The Escapement, which I actually think is, uh, I mean, they're both very exciting, but um, The Escapement is, I think... It's the one book I wrote that is not political. You know, I kind of wanted to write a book that was not political um, and is more of a fable and has some, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's a weird one. It's a very weird book. In a way, it's my weirdest book. And and again, interestingly, Tachyon, I think, want to sell it as uh, as literary fiction. They're, they're not really, you know, they're not really calling it a fantasy, even though it's probably the most fantastical book I've written. So...
1: It's well, a weird one. I, hmm? I, 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 I have a I, 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 You're right; it's a very strange book, and it's clowns and deserts <laughs> and this sort of thing. But it's a lot of fun too. And again, but it's the only book I've seen, and so I did want to ask you about this. Uh, it's the only novel I've seen that takes a kind that takes essentially John Clute's theory of horror as a structural element. I mean, he talks about the thickening as something that happens in a his four part structure of horror. And you've actually got a region called the thickening in here. Does John know you did that? Well,
2: I mean, uh, John's a friend of mine. Yeah, um, and obviously, I'm a huge fan of his as well. So, actually, both um, both the escapement and the hood are based on his ideas
1: in the darkening um, garden,
2: and, and and acknowledged in the um, in in both books. Um, so my take on Robin Hood, for example, was very much going to what John Clute says about Robin Hood in the encyclopedia of fantasy and using that. And I don't think anyone's actually done that as much as <laughs> John. I think he made it up out of whole cloth. <laughs> um, but I thought it was an interesting take. Um, and, I, and I'm really looking forward to John reading it because I know it turns out he's a big Robin Hood fan.
1: I did not know uh,
2: Since he was a kid. So I'm really hoping you know, to get him a copy soon to read. Um but yeah, I was very much kind of looking at what John was saying. The Darkening Garden I think is an incredible book. And so I'm writing Clutian fantasy. <laughs> 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 um yeah. One of
1: few.
0: So what's um, no. just quickly. Yeah.
2: No.
0: I was gonna say, what is the elevator pitch for the escapement?
2: Well there's there's the publisher's one and there's my one. I'm not let's supposed to yours. use my one. No. <laughs> Um, it's it's a story about a father who's looking for a cure for his son's illness for a flower, um, and he travels across a land called the Escapement searching for the flower, uh, the plant of hardy to try and uh, you know try and stop his child from dying. So that's the that's their pitch. Yeah, my pitch is it's a clown west, <laughs> but it turns out people really don't like clowns, and uh, I, have to, I have to kind of address that. At some point in the book, quite explicit. I don't really understand it, but um, well, it's, yeah, also
1: it was... a, it's it's an archetypal western in that you have the characters name the, the stranger and the kid and um, those kind of archetypal names. It's uh, obviously a lot of allusions to Sergio Leone uh, and uh, maybe even I don't know Hodorovsky, uh, the, the yeah, touch of El Topo
2: yeah that's an interesting i I don't think it was that conscious all of it um i think what was interesting is i tried to write that one as i do now is i try and write them as episodes you know Uh um which makes it easier for me because i'm not a natural novelist and um so i did i think the first four kind of work as standalone stories and one of them was published i think elizabeth hand published it in conjunctions Mm -hmm. um well was in the second second episode but very quickly it became evident that this isn't going to work. <laughs> this this <laughs> was a on you know, and I had to just abandon that idea that things could stand on their own. And also it's a book that started with me just wanting to write a very simple story. I just wanted to write a classical pulp B plot, you know, of a guy going looking for a flower and things that happened on the way. And it just turned into by far the weirdest, um, hey, the weirdest book, <laughs> you know. Um, with The with the Hood, which I know you guys kind of want to see, The Hood I had no control over, weirdly. Um, that was a book I was really fighting with, uh, which never happens to me. I mean, I'm not one of those no. people who go, the characters have a life of their own, and then they, they're just taking over the book. But the book kind of wanted to go its own way, and I kind of just gave in to wherever it was going, <laughs> not really knowing. And then it goes... I, I keep referring to this. It goes pleasingly bonkers. It gets to about a third of the book and I can pinpoint the exact point where you just go, this is the most ridiculous thing. <laughs> um, and then it just takes off from there. And, and, and up, to the, up to the writing, up to the ending, I didn't know if the whole thing even worked or if it was a pile of rubbish. And you know, my agent phoned me and he said, what's it like? And I said, I have no idea. I have no idea if this is any good. And I got to the end, and somehow it works, even though it's you know hmm. it's it's the weirdest, it's it's a weird structure. Um, and of course, the idea is that ideally there'd be eventually there'd be four of those. So I think the sum, you know, the the whole should be more than the sum of its parts. But in any case, I think it's it's the most Jewish Robin that's ever been written. <laughs> um, because I don't know why there were Jews in Nottingham in the 12th century. That was one of those mysteries, you know. What were the Jews doing there? And if you have Jews there, what, what would they make of it all, you know? And, <laughs> and it was quite fun to play with that body of myth again, with yeah. all of the stuff the yeah. English, English national mythology. Um, but I've no idea what people will make out of any of this stuff.
0: <laughs> okay well the best of world sfs out in stores right now you can get the lunacy commission the short story collection uh online from good bookstores as well it's out as well uh the escapement is out i think in october and the hood is out in october as well so they're out in the world i want to just say lavita Titar, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today i genuinely
1: genuinely appreciate it
2: well thank you for listening to me moan for for an hour About how terrible everything
1: is. It was very enlightening (laughs) for both of us, and thank you from this end, too. And until our next time, then, this has been the Cood Street Podcast.